Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome into the show Paul Pullman, who needs very little introduction. He was the chief executive officer of Unilever for many years, and today is the co-founder of Imagine, a fascinating organization that's looking at collaboratives and systems change and engaging the corporate world and leading CEOs in different industry sectors, trying to get them beyond that tipping point, getting them to embrace sustainability more seriously. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. They are an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and to philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. In 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist calling them an AI for good company. So check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned today, it's such a pleasure to welcome to the show Paul Pullman, someone who I hold in very high esteem and who does tremendous stuff to help our world move forward in a very sustainable and inclusive manner. Paul, it's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto, and likewise, really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to see you again. I know it's been almost two years since we first had a chat. So welcome onto the show. And I guess, why don't we start by finding out a little bit more about Imagine. What's your organization all about? Well, we all know the famous sentence, you may think I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what uh, Imagine is all about is, is to really look at the sustainable development goals. Uh, most of the people in the world now know what needs to be done in terms of fighting climate change, inequality, etc. And we're moving in the right direction. But what is very clear is we're not moving at the speed and scale that is needed. And the reason for that is uh, multiple. Uh, One of the main reasons for that is that we're trying to make uh, changes within a current system that pushes back. So we're playing not to lose versus playing to win. Hmm. So Imagine is really focused on the broader systems changes. And if you're a CEO nowadays, you're being held to very high standards. But the reality is you probably alone can only deliver 50, 60% of that. Some needs to be done in the value chain. Some needs to be done at industry level. And some needs to be done with governments where you still have the wrong incentive systems. So we're very much about moving these boundaries that then change behavior. And our theory of change is very simple. We obviously believe in the force of the private sector becoming more and more important in the future. You've seen the issues of globalization and global cooperation. You've seen the struggles of governments at national level, the increased populism, nationalism, xenophobia. So we believe the private sector has to step up and fill that void. After all, there are about uh, 60% of the global economy, uh, 80% of the financial flow, 90% of the job creation, with all the other things that come with it. So we think that if we can put... Um, by sector, uh, mm-hmm. enough CEOs together, about 20 to 25% along the whole value chain, then um, we can actually create tipping points. And there are not many organizations that create that safe space. 
So we look at industries that have the biggest influence on the sustainable development goals. The, the biggest one, obviously, is, is the fossil uh, industry as we work climate change. And there's enough effort there. So we decided not to focus on it. But then you have the fashion industry, a very polluting industry to some extent. Then you have the food industry, which is a major driver for climate change. Then finance. So we're looking at that, bringing CEOs together. In the fashion industry, we now have uh, 64 CEOs together of the major companies. In food, we work with the 30 biggest um, companies and CEOs. And then together, what we find is that when these CEOs come together as a collective, they become more courageous. So we work on their human potential. And at the same time, we work on the joint strategies that we can uh, put in place to drive the systems changes. Fascinating. A simple example for each of them, if you want to, is on, um, on food. We're working on regenerative agriculture. Uh, food is causing about 25% of the climate change in the way we're doing it, and a lot of other misery, leaving people in poverty or hunger or deforestation, obesity on the other side. So the whole food chain is, is pretty broken. But we should make food actually carbon positive. It should be a solution to climate change, and it could be up to a 20 to 30% solution. Right now, although it is a solution up to 20 30%, it only gets two or three percent of the funding. So how can we make uh, agriculture more uh, carbon positive, what we call regenerative agriculture? How can we improve the livelihood of smallholder farmers? How can we work on changes of consumer habits in a collective way and, uh, and do that? So that would be a typical example of where we drive the step changes. And it's a three to five year process that uh, we bring these CEOs together, obviously now on Zoom, but hopefully Zoom soon also in person yeah. and, uh, and, and move the system changes that are needed. And when you get a critical mass of CEOs together, civil society wants to join, governments start to listen. So you create these broader alliances or partnerships, goal 17 in the SDGs, that are really needed to create these tipping points. And that's what we're focused on. Fascinating, fascinating. Ultimately, is it the private sector that you think needs to take the lead? You know, we've we've spoken a little bit about philanthropy, but philanthropy is relatively small, uh, and I guess it's a question of structuring the right uh, incentives and facilitating the right environment for the private sector to make something happen. Well, it's in the end individuals who take the lead, and they can come from all parts of life. We've seen in, in uh, with the COVID crisis how many communities at the local level stepped up, and I think that's where more of the global sanity uh, has been saved if you want to or cooperation happened it can come from philanthropists that are doing wonderful things uh, you take stripes work right now in africa to ensure that the developing markets get access to the vaccine it can come from um, some governments that are responsible that uh, that have taken tremendous uh, proactive steps like the european green deal but broadly you cannot get the global economy to function uh, the financial flow to work, uh, the critical mass of innovations that you need and people and resources if you don't get the private sector behind that. So I always advocate this broader partnership, but I think the, the private sector has benefited for decades from this enormous wealth that we have created, from governments that have globally cooperated, from systems that function. Now that it is a little bit more difficult, I think we have that responsibility to fill that void. And COVID has brought that to light even more. Uh, unfortunately, late and unfortunately, very expensive and very tragic what we have to go through. 
and uh, it has been a pause button for many people uh, who have suffered. Here again, it's the people that were already marginalized in society that suffer disproportionately, just like they do for climate change. So hopefully we've used the pause button, not only sadly enough to stop the economies or stop lives for, for too many people, but also to pause and reflect and think about the new form of leadership and business models that are needed, the more moral forms of leadership so that we come out of this better than when we went in, because we can't go through this every 10 years. The financial crisis was only 10 years ago. We didn't take the lessons then. So hopefully now we heed the lessons and build back a greener, more resilient, more inclusive, more sustainable economy. And we have all the possibilities to do that if we decide to do so. Hmm. What are the hurdles that a chief executive of a major firm is facing? Is there a lack of time, lack of tools? You mentioned the safe space or lack thereof. Uh, tell us a little bit about what an average CEO of a major firm is thinking and in practice, what should they do about it to overcome these hurdles? Well, it's all of the above, obviously, and it's uh, slightly different for each of the CEOs, depending on the sectors they're in or the positions that they face themselves. But um, first of all, the tenure is relatively short. The average tenure of a CEO now is four and a half years. The incentive systems are often misaligned. Uh, in terms of building shareholder value, but not societal value. Boards uh, often put pressure on CEOs, at least the feedback that you get. Uh, there's a competitive space, you know, if company A does something, company B doesn't want to join. There's a lack of knowledge or time. And then obviously the most important currency is trust. Whilst in the la latest Edelman survey, the business community came out better than governments or the media it was basically driven by these letter two going down in trust not the business significantly building trust so and our systems around us are not really designed to provide the answers if you look at many of the talk shows or industry associations or consultancies they're all well meant and they have a role to play but they don't provide that safe space to really move faster and uh, move higher. Um, so we help these CEOs. When I was at Unilever for 10 years, the first five years, my prime focus was putting Unilever on track and launching this Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which has sort of become a, a standard. People very critical at that time, but now overwhelming evidence that that is a good way to run the business also for your shareholders longer term. I mean, we had a 300% return over those 10 years. But the last five years of my tenure, I really started to think of how can I use the size and scale of Unilever being in 190 countries, reaching 3 billion people to drive for more transformative change. So we got into sustainable sourcing, into human rights and livelihoods, uh, fair wages, all these things, into uh, the broader partnerships that needed to be developed. And uh, I saw that you could achieve quite a lot and we got a lot of recognition for that, became the most uh, admired company, so to speak, two million people applying to us every year, the desired employer in most of the countries that we operated, very high engagement scores. But I also saw that with my shackles on still, I could only achieve so much. Mm. And uh, creating this neutral platform now moves you from perhaps formal authority to moral authority, but I can tell you it, it not only feels better, but the impact you can have is also infinitely bigger, uh, even compared to running one of these major companies like Unilever. So I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. I'm very fortunate to be able to work with people who feel the same. And, uh, and that's very important to 
achieve progress. There's something about purposeful play that we have as one of our values in Imagine. And, and what you now see is that there are more and more CEOs who understand that we cannot go on like this and be on this destructive path of, uh, of devastating effects of climate change or inequality. You know, any system where too many people feel that they're not participating or are excluded will ultimately rebel against itself. And finally, people are starting to see this. And to some extent, COVID has been a blessing despite the tragedies. I don't want to misrepresent it, but we've discovered because of COVID, the interrelationships between biodiversity, human health, climate, the economy, uh, racial dimensions with the tragic death of uh, George Floyd. And, uh, and people have discovered that so many things are broken. So to one extent, it's confusing. It's overwhelming. Where do I start? But I'd rather rebuild something when more things are broken than not. So we can rebuild it properly. And what you now see is that we're taking these lessons, I think. We're starting to take these lessons. The last six months of 2020 saw enormous actions on climate change. Many of the major countries making commitments to be net zero by 2050 or 2060 in terms of emissions, absolutely needed to stay below the one and a half degrees. We have 65 countries now doing that, about 50% of the global economy. So you're close to a tipping point there. But more importantly, we also have better and deeper discussions on the social contract and what the role of companies are. And increasingly, you see financial markets starting to understand this, not only from a risk point of view, but increasingly from an opportunity point of view. And companies that make these bolder commitments see actually a positive reflection in their share price now as well. So we might be on the on the, the verge of something. It's, it's uh, the end of the beginning, uh, I would argue, uh, more than the beginning of the end, but we can definitely now uh, accelerate and, and turn this tragedy into a positive where people say this was an inflection point for humanity and we finally understood why we were here to work for the greater good, to put ourselves to the service of others and to irreversibly eradicate poverty in a more sustainable and equitable way and it happened then and there and that would be a great legacy for us to leave. Hmm. So I sense some optimism there in you. I would say hope more than optimism. Uh, um, you know, uh, Desmond Tutu said it well when he was on the panel with me once a few years ago. Are uh, you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And he says, I'm a prisoner of hope. And I think uh, it's too late to be a pessimist. And, and I would also say uh, that prisoner of hope thing was appealing to me. And that comes from the increased uh, collaboration that we see, the increased sense of purpose, especially amongst the uh, younger people who have a great sense of hope, if you want to, and, uh, and the enormous future possibilities that we have. It's a great world. There's nothing wrong in that sense, provided we behave like adults increasingly. But for the last few years, we've discovered it's the kids who behave like adults and the adults who behave like kids. So if we wake up now and, and see this as a defining moment for all of us, then, yeah, then I will stay a prisoner of hope. I was going to ask you, and, and maybe you touched on it a little bit earlier, I was going to ask you whether the world changed radically for you when you left Unilever. Uh, because you mentioned before at Unilever, you have this tremendous platform. You're in 190 countries. You know, you you can move things forward. Uh, but I think I picked up on something you said a little bit earlier that actually the potential for you to draw forward even greater change perhaps is actually stronger now than it was when you were at Unilever. 
Absolutely, because you uh, uh, you don't have people that move for you because they are bonded to you in one way or another with an employment contract or a bonus or um, the formal authority that you have in, in the uh, spending power that is behind a conglomerate like this and uh, ability to uh, you know manage it in a way that probably catch you some of the results but are not embedded. I've always believed more in the moral authority, even when I was in Unilever and have a principle-driven organization versus a rules-driven organization. So uh, I believe that is better for the longer term. It might get you a little bit later where you want to be. But interestingly, Unilever never incentivized our people financially for sustainability or for diversity. I always felt that if you didn't believe in it, you shouldn't work there. But uh, if you want to have it embedded in the culture, it shouldn't be bought. Something that's difficult to understand for many people still today. So having the moral authority, which you probably also need to a certain extent with your formal authority, is, is a much more powerful weapon to drive lasting change. You also see where people genuinely then want to work with you. You also work then with people that are incredibly purpose-driven. And if you then put the right alliances around you, you can actually achieve more. I find now that you know with the neutral platform that we've created with Imagine, which we are financing ourselves, as a foundation structure, that's a very safe space for people where actually more trust is created and, and trust is this and that transparency and accountability are absolutely the foundations that are needed to build that longer term inclusive prosperity that we're after. So it's, a, it's the right, I wouldn't say better or worse because I never, I enjoy every moment of my life. It's too short not to enjoy it, but it's a, it's a right platform right now for what the world needs. And where I can add value. And if you have that possibility to make a difference or add value, I think it's even more so now our obligation to do that. And by your take in any given industry or the average industry, if there is such a thing, you grab 20 of the leading CEOs and you're well poised to tip that industry to make a difference? If you have about, uh, depends on the industry a little bit, but if you have about 20, 25% of the industry together, and you know, as you can imagine, um, Alberto, those are the uh, responsible companies that you that you get, gather first. Then it starts attracting others. They don't want to miss the boat. It starts attracting other players that you need to drive that system change. But that's about what is needed for systems change. We always make the mistake that we that we preach to everybody and we want everybody to be converted, and then we get frustrated that some people don't do it. But it's not needed actually. You need to focus on the levers of change that you have. And that requires the in our in our experience, you know. I, I put once uh, Pepsi, Coke, Unilever, and Nestle together, mm -hmm. all great people, because they had these uh, cabinets, the beverage cabinets, ice cream cabinets, and that does three percent of global warming with uh, CFC and HFC. Uh, those four companies went together and created natural refrigerants and a different engine. Uh, you know, and that's pre-competitive space to me. Nobody buys an ice cream based on the engine that's in the ice cream cabinet. But if you work together and create a natural refrigerant, get some governments there, might have to change some laws, uh, make clear what you're doing. You know, you're talking really about protecting the future of humanity. And even with those four companies, you can drive change. One of the key things we need to do is move the financial markets to the longer term. I'm convinced that if we could get the key responsibles for Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, uh, BlackRock, and one or two others in a room and say, guys, this is so important what can we collectively do then even there with a few people you can make a enormous wave 
and it goes beyond declarations. You know, there are many declarations out there and even from some of those companies that have been very quick to tell others what to do. But if you can really translate that into concrete action and accountability and transparency, uh, the world is ready for it now more than ever. And the good thing I believe is that we also have increasingly the evidence that it's just a better way to run your business. You, you attract better people, you lower your costs, you become more resilient for the future. The financial markets actually appreciate it more and, and we are increasingly seeing that these ESG funds or companies that are run longer term multi-stakeholder tend to perform better. So we're in that sweet spot now where Milton Friedman is dead, I think, and where, you know, where responsible business is, is again showing the way, you know. We forgot that Adam Smith wrote his book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, but, but 17 years before that, he wrote a book which was called The Theory of Moral Sentiment. And I think we're back in the period of, of moral sentiment, not anymore as a theory, but hopefully in practice. Hmm. And tell me, so Imagine is a foundation? It's a foundation, and then at the same time, we are for benefit part of it, and we are in the process of the B Corp status, because we then look in each of the categories for the more uh, heroic companies that are there that want to be the leaders uh, and that pull the others up. So it's about moving the, the ceiling up and moving the floor up at an accelerated pace. So we do work with some individual companies to change the face of private equity, for example, now we're working with one company developing a major uh, impact fund, but uh, with criteria that are different than the 10-year holding, the 20% carriers and the, you know, I win, you might lose type uh, equation that is out there now. So how do you um, move it to not only uh, risk and return, but risk, return and impact could uh, create critical mass. Then we would bring other uh, private equity companies around that and, and create a critical mass and hopefully change an industry. So we're all at the end of the day, not, not into changing companies, but changing industries. That's really, my life is too short, but sometimes you have to have some individual companies that are the engines of that change. <laughs> changing industries instead of companies. So tell me, in terms of the industries that you've changed and you feel, okay, those industries, they're on good track. And now you're mentioning the sort of like work in progress with private equity. Uh, which industries are the ones on the other side that haven't quite caught on yet that you have your eyes set on? Well, we still have a, a job to do. You take climate change, for example, which is our most burning issue. Uh, it is true that we have um, about $25 trillion in, uh, in uh, companies making uh, commitments for climate change. But if you look at really the science-based commitments, which is really what is needed, we specifically laid out plans to stay below one and a half degrees between now and 2050. And then even more specifically, what do you do in the next 10 years, which are going to be defining, you still find a very low percentage. And obviously the challenges are the high abatement uh, industries like uh, airlines, steel, aluminum, cement, and uh, shipping. And whilst we see leaders emerge in each of these industries, where some of the companies are making incredible commitments, you know, the Mercks or the KLMs or the Dahlia in, in cement in India, just to name a few, um, we still miss that critical mass. So we need to concentrate on that. That's also where the, the uh, bulk of the emission is. If you look at food, as I mentioned before, the food companies are doing incredible things and each of them have pages to fill in their sustainability reports. 
but collectively the demand for food, the population growth, the changing eating habits are very still a very destructive force on, on climate change. And uh, deforestation, for example, is up year after year, uh, sadly enough. We again see the tragedy unfolding in front of our eyes uh, where two soccer fields disappear every minute in Brazil with a government that is grossly irresponsible or where the Cerrado, uh, you know, gets, uh, gets unfortunately uh, abused. So even though we do a lot of good things, we still have our jobs cut out in most of the industries. You know, fashion, most of the fashion companies we work with are moving to alternatives to leather or, you know, make commitments to not have, uh, uh, you know, anorexia models or move to regenerative cotton. But the demand for fashion, the uh, fast fashion, we now have 52 seasons, if not more, the growth again of the population makes that even these good efforts that we do, that the overall trend is still not our friend. So what we are focused on is creating that awareness and then bending that curve. And at the end of the day, it has to go to less resource use. We have to figure out another way to measure our success. And those are the tougher discussions and the tougher decisions. But last year, us overshoot day was August 26. And that means that after that day, we use more resources than the planet can replenish. I would say after that day, it means that we are stealing from future generations. So if we don't start thinking of businesses uh, becoming net positive, actually repairing, restoring, it's not even any more circular. It has to go a step further. And businesses have to show increasingly what positive impact they have in society, be it environmental, but also increasingly social. And if you cannot show that, frankly, you don't have any reason for being. And we as citizens of this world should vote those businesses out of existence. That's why you also see the lifetime of publicly traded companies going down quite rap rapidly. Over the last four decades in the US alone, where data are more readily available, but they've come down from 8,500 to about 4,000. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for sharing wealth. It's a tragedy for the resilience of, um, of economies. And it's a tragedy for uh, putting plans in place that have longer-term impacts but, but need that leadership uh, and continuity. So that's where we need to go back to, and I think we would all be better off, hmm. including the private sector itself. And there's, there's increasing evidence that that is the case. Now that we're looking to build back better and, uh, and that a lot of boardrooms are really focused on what you know, the post-pandemic world or hopefully the post-pandemic world will look like, what words of wisdom would you have for policymakers and governments who set the playing field for the private sector? Uh, what is it that they can do to incentivize and to facilitate and really to help the private sector improve, um, helping it play a positive role? We've spent about $13 trillion during COVID just to stabilize economies and saving lives and livelihoods. Much of that money actually was wasted. Some of that was well spent, but uncoordinated, a panic attempt and uh, a, a tremendous cost. To implement the Sustainable Development Goals, which has a, have as an objective to irreversibly eradicate poverty in a more sustainable and equitable way, to not leave anybody behind, we really can achieve that over the next 10, 15 years, would only cost two to three trillion dollars of incremental spend. So we're at a moment in history where the cost of not acting is becoming significantly higher than the cost of acting. 
when we had the financial crisis 10 years ago, we spent a boatload of money to save the financial institutions, but we didn't take care of the two most important things, climate change and inequality. People felt that banks were too big to fail, but people were too small to matter. We saw populism going up, we saw the Brexits, we saw the, the Trump elections, we paid a high price for that. Now we need to be sure that we build back better in a way that is more resilient, that is greener, where we create better jobs, where we have a more inclusive economic growth. And study after study points out that if we invest in restoring our biodiversity, greening our cities, electrifying our mobility systems, retrofitting buildings, R&D, education, that they have significantly higher multipliers on the benefits versus investments. And also, obviously, that they uh, generate uh, more jobs, more resilient jobs and better jobs. So the idea is, is really to build back greener, not build back brown again. The European Green Deal does that to a certain extent. It's the biodiversity package with the farm to fork package. But in the US, we have seen under the emphasis of heavy lobbying and money in politics, that twice as much money went to the fossil fuel industry than the green industry in the US, which is absolutely absurd. absurd. I just read an art, uh, wrote an article for Harvard Business Review that came out last weekend that uh, you're welcome to look at, but it talks about that dysfunctional relationship there that has emerged over the years between business and, and politics where, you know, where democracy gets undermined, uh, where the power of money is, is more powerful than the power of people, and that never works longer term. So now we need to be sure that these um, politicians because they have tough jobs, get the support of responsible business to do the right things, even if it requires some investment. But, you know, the biggest tragedy of, of COVID, uh, and there are many of them, is that, uh, you know, about 500 million equivalent jobs have been uh, lost. Uh, 275 million people are in acute food uh, insecurity uh, issues. This really has been a great reverser on the sustainable development goals. And um, as we come out of this, we need to be sure that we make that more of an inclusive growth, that we create jobs, especially again for young people and women who have been disproportionately affected. If we don't do that, our social cohesion will be at risk. It's a much more important thing. I think we talk climate change, but at the end of the day, it always comes back to people and social cohesion. So creating the right jobs, creating them being more resilient, more inclusive, better paying. New social contracts are going to be an in incredibly important part moving forward. And, and again, once more, companies that understand that will do very well. We're starting to see that already. Hmm. Now, let me ask you, what triggered, what happened with you way back when that made you at some point think, okay, actually, yes, I am doing well in the corporate world, but you know what? We need to start doing uh, something differently. Let's take a leadership role and start thinking about sustainability and stakeholders. And I mean, what happened? At what point in your life did something click if there is such a clear defining moment and uh, started getting you thinking differently than I think most of your contemporaries? Oh, I don't know if it's more than our contemporaries. I, you know, Rutger Brackman in the Netherlands wrote a book called Humankind uh, that came out last year, which basically, basically talks about the goodness of human beings. I think we all have a diamond in ourselves ready to shine, but sometimes we leave it unpolished. But if you don't believe in the goodness of human beings, then the essence of being here is being challenged. So I always have believed that. 
But I don't think it's one thing or another. We all have our life journeys that give you some crucibles that form you and that will go on till the last day you're here and, and before you start again something else. So, you know, I grew up in 1956, uh, 10 years after World War II. I always thought it was a long time after the war, but, you know, the older I get, the, the more I realize how close it was. And education was deprived from my parents. My father was 15 when the war started and 20 when it was finished. And he didn't have high school as a result of it. And he had to work two jobs to be sure that his six kids went to school. And education was important. He wanted us to have peace. That's why we created Europe. They always worked on their communities from day one with their church, Boy Scouts and all the things. They understood that they had to invest in others and by doing so they would be better off themselves as well. So that's how we grew up and that's a very important thing that we uh, need to remind ourselves of. You know, one of the key things my father always said is never forget your house number, never forget where you came from and, and to keep your feet on the ground. That's very much what we do in the part of the Netherlands that I come from. And during your life, you then have your life journeys. You know, I wanted to be first a priest and I wanted to be a doctor. I ended up with serendipity in business. I wouldn't do it again today. I wouldn't go into business necessarily, but I always felt more of an urge to help other people. But as I progressed in business, with a little bit of luck, I found that the impact that you can have as a company and the way you do business, uh, that, that could be different. And these issues became more transparent. You can't blame people when these issues weren't really there. But we've been so successful lifting people out of poverty. We've had such a population explosion. And if you add these two up, you know, it put this enormous pressure on the planetary boundaries. And then, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with companies where their values are aligned with mine, the, the PNGs, the Nestle's, the Unilever's, which have been around for 100, 150 years for that same reason. These companies are built to last. And then during your journey, you discover different things. You know, these companies are very much working in the developing markets with poor people on the ground and, and uh, helping with them to improve their lives. And I've been exposed to that throughout my years. We have our own charities that are important. You know, I climbed Kilimanjaro with eight blind people that changed my life. And six of us made it to the top, the first blind African and others from all parts of the world. And we started a foundation, my wife and myself, now that there's 26,000 blind kids in Africa in school. And then I was in Mumbai, uh, you know, in the terrible um, storming of the Taj Mahal. We were stuck there and I saw the value of life a little bit clear and how many lost it tragically that night, but also the goodness of people shown through when we came out. And, and you know, I worked in Newcastle where I saw for the first time in my life, second generation unemployment when steel building, coal and and uh, shipbuilding had all gone belly up and you know you just realize increasingly so that uh, we've just been lucky that we won the lottery ticket of life you know when i was born in the netherlands i had a toilet at home i didn't have an issue of open defecation we had food didn't have to worry about sanitation or stunting we had uh, free education from the government which gave me an incredible opportunity but what did I do for it? Nothing. I was just born in the Netherlands. So if you win the lottery ticket of life, then and you will become financially independent and can do what you want and work where you like and all that, you only belong to 5% of the world population. And frankly, if you only belong to that 5% and you start realizing that, then you know it's your duty or I would say your obligation to put yourself to the service of the other 95%. And it's very selfish. It's very selfish. 
anytime I feel down or depressed or a little bit demotivated or things don't go the way I wanted it to go, you know, I think uh, of all the people that we help that are blind or deafblind, that want to become ministers of education, want to become doctors, want to have families. And then, you know, it puts yourself straight, you know. Some people think, uh, you know, greed is good, but longer-term generosity will always win. So if you can get to that in life, and it's a sweet spot to be in, and we're fortunate to be there, and then, you know, then it's also a good thing if you can make the changes or help influence the changes that need to be made. So what would you have gone into if not business? In hindsight, had you to do it again, maybe business? Oh, I, I... I'd still often think of, of becoming a doctor because, but in Holland they had a lottery system and because the government pays for everything. So there's a numerous clauses or numerous fixes as they call it. So I couldn't at that time, but oh, no, I, if I would start today as a young person, I might still go that direction. Or now there's so many more possibilities. I'd start a B Corp and a social enterprise. You know, we have started some, but I would do that with enthusiasm and, you know, I'm involved in many of them and I admire them. And there's so much need for it. And you can create multiplier effects that are much bigger than, you know, than, than, than we realize. So redesigning how business could be and should be to the benefit of society is a very important thing. And so the good thing is that many more opportunities now. <laughs> what do you see as success for the next 10 years as we dovetail nicely with the SDGs for 2030? So this is important. In fact, 2021 is an important year because we had a pause in 2020 and a lot of the events that we had organized globally also came to a pause. So this year you have the Food Summit, the Nutrition Summit, the Biodiversity Summit, the COP15 in, in Kunming in China. You have the COP26 in Glasgow in the US, in, in the UK, sorry. So this is a year of delivery and um, where we need to get people into higher ambition and then putting that into action. And this is going to be a very important defining 10 years. People talk about why do you want to be 30 years from now, 40 years from now, or what should the world look like in 2050, uh, is all what we decide today. You know, the uh, International Energy Agency in 2014, not that long ago, said it will take till 2050 until we have green energy at 5 cents per kilowatt hour. We actually have achieved that in 2020. The same... Estimates were made for electric vehicles. They said it will take to 2050. And many of the fossil fuel companies said, yeah, we want all that, but people need energy. You can't keep them poor. We still need fossil fuel. We are proving that all these curves and the technology, etc., is just going exponential. And if we put a little bit more energy behind that and not fight it, but collectively um, embrace it, we would have hydrogen at a, at a lower cost than fossil fuel in the next uh, three to five years as we wanted to. And these are major tipping points that need to happen now. Also major opportunities to invest. In fact, the funds that are going now, the venture funds that are going now into green energy are bigger than any other area. So there is something happening there that people need to be aware of. And all too often, I, I see still people taking the, the uh, easier wrong than the harder right. Oh, I can't do it. My shareholders won't allow me. Uh, it will cost us more. My employees will not be, you know, th these are all little cop-outs where you want to stay in a safety zone. And what we need increasingly more is leaders that, you know, moral leaders that, that feel uncomfortable, that are bold and brave, that make commitments beyond really that they know right now 
can be delivered perhaps, but that they know need to be done. And this is what is, needs to happen in the next five to 10 years. And with that, we have to embrace the young generation and make it a more inclusive um, recovery. Uh, 50% of the population is below 30 years old and they're going to be 100% tomorrow. So I've always been saying, don't give them a seat at the table, actually give them the table. Mm -hmm. They're creative, they know how to work in partnerships, they understand technology, they're purpose-driven, more multi-generational in their thinking. And, and lots of the solutions to the challenges that we have are already there. And they're positive about it. We don't have to be apologetic. We can, we can do this with positive energy, which always is, is more effective than the alternatives. And uh, so the 10 years is going to be decisive. And this year, 2021, is going to be a proof of the pudding. And the stars are aligned a little bit. We got China now making a commitment to be net zero by 2060. The EU is the Green Deal, et cetera. And the EU 55% uh, reduction objectives by 2030. Japan has come in with the new government. The South Korea, the UK. Now Biden has made, as of day one, he's entered the Paris agreements again. So, you know, I think there is a certain momentum that we need to realize first, understand a little bit more, and then work together in these partnerships to, uh, to achieve the objectives as well laid down in the Sustainable Development Goals. Probably the best business plan we have in humanity. Mm -hmm. When I looked at it, I asked Mark Malik brown once because how do you get it into business, you know? 17 goals, 169 targets, an average CEO, if they can remember three things, it's already a miracle. So <laughs> how do you do it with the Sustainable Development Goals? So we created the, 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 the Commission for Business and Sustainable Development and we found an opportunity just by looking at four areas you know, mobility, cities, energy transition, and food and land use. We found an opportunity of $12 trillion and creating 380 million jobs. Now, that was four years ago. That has only gone up. So this is the business plan of the century. It's manna from heaven. It's the, the only opportunity, I think, that we will get in the history of our mankind where we can say that this is the generation that irreversibly eradicated poverty and dealt with the uh, burning issues of climate change. So there are not many opportunities I think that we have as, as humans to have such a defining uh, moment, you know, and that has to be done. Uh, it was Gandhi who said that our ability to reach unity and diversity will be the beauty and the test of our civilization. So this can only be done in that partnership and that embracing that makes life interesting, but that also makes us solve the most amazing things that we are facing. Excellent, excellent. What's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind? And maybe you've answered it because there's so much wisdom and insight in everything uh, you've been saying here. Uh, is there one key thing, if people have limited bandwidth and memories, uh, what's that key thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, we've talked about a, uh, a lot of things, Alberto, but I think the notion that we are all connected, that we are all here for a bigger thing than ourselves, that true leaders are first and foremost human beings that understand that they have to put themselves to the service of others and by doing so, they would be better off themselves as well, I think is a, is a key thing. Um, the moment life really starts is when you realize that it's not about yourself. Mm. If we can uh, then muster that energy that you unlock, that freedom that is given to you to really work individually or collectively 
uh, on these burning issues, climate change and inequality being the most important one, then you know your life will be fun, will be more meaningful, will be far more satisfying. You probably have a longer life next to a happier life as well, but you've left, made a lasting difference. You can say you left this world in a better chance than you found it, and that's ultimately what life is all about. I love it. I absolutely love it. You've been listening to Paul Pullman, co-founder of Imagine and former chief executive officer of Unilever and someone who speaks from the heart and has abundant passion for the sustainable development goals, our global humanity, and the future well-being of our planet. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today, and thank you so very much for everything that you're doing to improve our world. No, thanks, Alberto, for the opportunity and, and for your podcast, Do One Better. I hope after today we do two better and accelerate it a little bit. But it has been a pleasure, and I look forward to the next one. Wonderful, and that's a wrap. You've been listening to Paul Pullman, who is incredible. Um, if you want to stay up to date on the latest and be aware of what's coming up next, please click that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. It makes a huge difference for us, and it helps you stay up to date on what's coming up next. Some incredible guests we have in the pipeline include David Miliband and David Lynch and a whole bunch of other individuals who are doing remarkable work. For a full transcript of today's conversation, feel free to visit our website at ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And you'll also be able to find episode notes on over 100 conversations that we've had so far over the last two years. Thank you very much and see you next week. <music>